Hi, and thank you for listening to Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation theology and history. We're, we're taking sort of a break from the topic of Reformational-esque topics. I, I say sort of because that is kind of the agenda today, but we also like to keep up, uh, as you know, listeners, with biblical scholarship on this podcast. And we have had biblical scholars on occasion, and today is one of those occasions. Um, we have, uh, and we are tremendously honored to have, uh, Dr. Mike Bird. Yes, the Mike Bird, the best-selling New Testament scholar and author. Uh, Mike Bird is well where to begin. Um, a prolific author. Uh, he's the academic dean at Ridley College in Melbourne and is a priest in the Anglican Church of Australia. Uh, some of his books, notably known for uh, recently co-authoring with N.T. Wright, the book, The New Testament You Never Knew. Some other books he's written and co-written are Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. That's my cat meowing, I'm sorry. Seven Things I Wish Every Christian Knew About the Bible. And he's co-authored with uh, Scott Harrower. I think you pronounced that. I think I pronounced that right, but you can correct me in a moment. Uh, the books Trinity Without Hierarchy and Unlimited Atonement. And um, he's also co-authored with several authors a book titled How God Became Jesus, which was a response and rebuttal, really, to the uh, work of the popular writer and scholar Bart Ehrman. And so, and that's just to name a few. I'll, I'll include in our show notes a link to where you can view all his books. Uh, Mike Bird is also, uh, he's a frequent guest of many podcasts. He hosts a YouTube channel called Early Christian History, which has uh, informative videos about the origins and um, early history of Christianity. And he has a blog over at Pathios titled uh, Evangelion and a substack titled Word from Bird. And on these, he covers a range of uh, contemporary topics, expressing his thoughts on recent uh, controversies, uh, to name a few, the anti-LGBT bill in Uganda, the euthanasia in Canada. Uh, I mean, it just really runs the gamut. And so I'll include links for all for all these, the Substack, the blog. He is one of the most thoughtful religious commentators of our time. And so, uh, Dr. Bird, thank you for being on the show. It's a real honor. Good. Well, thank you, Drew and James, for, for having me. Uh, now, to give some background, you came uh, to the Christian faith as an adult, and you were in the Army, and I take it the Australian Army, um, where I've read you were a paratrooper but ended your military career as a chaplain's assistant. Um, so if you're fine with sharing, uh, what, what led you to being a Christian? Well, a number of things. Uh, you could say a funny thing happened on the road to Damascus. Uh, I grew up in a non-Christian family. Everything I, I learned about Christianity growing up, I learned from Ned Flanders. Uh, <laughs> that was that was the single Christian influence in my life. Um, yep. So I, I didn't. I, I just thought of Christians as moralizing geriatrics. Uh, but uh, but I. I I believed I lived in a moral universe, but I just didn't have any rational capacity to conceive of what made the universe moral, uh, mm -hmm. why there was a good and there was an evil. And, you know, I got invited to a church once and, you know, never really been along and I went for, just for something different to do. And all my you know, preconceived notions, all my prejudices against Christians were kind of broken down by actually meeting and getting to know Christians. And heard the good news of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and prayed to receive Christ in 1994. And the world's been a different place ever since. And yeah, I stayed in the military for a while. I was thinking about maybe becoming a military chaplain. But when I got to seminary, it was clear I was far more gifted on the academic side than on the pastoral care side. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, you know, did a few extra degrees, got a doctorate, and did a little bit of writing. Turns out I can pull off the, I can bluff my way through the writing stuff well enough. And, uh, I would say, yeah, <laughs> landed here. Yeah. I can sort of relate. I was military. I was an army cook. I've mentioned I was in the army on the show and I can't cook anything. Um, the army doesn't teach you how to cook. They just teach you how to heat some things up and serve it. Uh, but did most of my, uh, my military, my, my time in the reserves for eight years, um, doing other things. <laughs> <laughs> random details and things and um 
was serious about becoming military chaplain, and this is the U.S. Army we're speaking of, uh, was in, uh, even was ecclesiastically endorsed by the Episcopal Church Armed Forces to, to do so. And then my wife crushed that dream. She wouldn't mind me saying that because I tell everyone that and she laughs about it. So, and things have worked out for all the better. God works in um, mysterious ways, but, but I have a tremendous respect for, for military veterans of all nations. <laughs> so um, it's, it's uh, that, that is a really fascinating kind of um, beginning that it was in the military. You began to, to, uh, to, to, to explore that and those questions farther that led you to the faith. Um so uh, just some background for the listeners uh, that, you know, we several months ago, we did an episode where a couple of Lutheran theologians came on and they evaluated the, the book Biblical Womanhood by Beth Barr. And that episode ended up getting a little bit into the topic of women's ordination. That's um, we brought Dr. Bird on to kind of talk about a couple like several topics because he's written on so much and we, we'd have to do we could we could do like an entire podcast series on just, you know, what Mike Bird says. But um. So, but that, you know, women's ordination is something that is commonplace in denominations like where James and I belong, um, you know, and I, and you're in the Anglican Church of Australia, uh, correct, Dr. Bird? So, so it's a commonplace there as well. And yeah, that's um, right. That's great. And so, um, you know, personally, I mean, like I'm in support of women's ordination, uh, James, your wife's an Episcopal priest. So, uh, before going, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, where we stand in the show, but, um, but before, uh, go, I, I read a little book from, from you, Dr. Bird titled, uh, bourgeois babes, bossy wives and Bobby haircuts, fresh perspectives on women's ordination, which was, which was a biblical defense of women in, in ministry, uh, kind of a small study, kind of surveying the passages that are always, brought up in this uh debate and offering your perspective on it and and uh i brought that book up in that episode and since and when i brought that book up um you know i was uh thinking gosh why don't i just reach out to dr bird i mean that gave me that episode gave me the idea uh for reaching out to you to bringing you on to talk, talk about that topic but also uh, we have kind of a limited time here, so we'll get to maybe some other things, but definitely I want to definitely um, get to that topic first. Um, and to be honest, it's never a topic I really engaged that deeply um, of women's ordination. Um, but uh, I'd like to ask, uh, what is the case for it as you see it? And and I'll try my best to, I don't know how good I'll be at it, but to put on another hat and try to be devil's advocate and maybe try to press you on some things, but I'm not guaranteeing that if you, because I, I mean, I, I, I'm just more interested in getting you to speak to it. So, um, was women's, well, first off, was women's ordination something you've always seen as kind of just a legitimate thing in the church or, or what, what do you know? No, I was, yeah, I started off kind of, you know, young, re restless and reformed. I was um, slightly to the right of John Piper uh, <laughs> when, it, when it came, when it came to this topic, um, you know, and you've got to remember again, I spent my formative, you know, ad adolescent years in the military where it's a bizarre mix of misogyny and chivalry. And I don't know, maybe maybe Drew, you'll you'll understand what I mean. It's a bizarre yes. mix of both misogyny and chivalry at the same Especially time. Especially in the 2000s, I heard the army's very PC now, but not when I was in. So. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I remember I worked with a guy who had a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche on his desk, which said, "Man shall be trained for war, and the woman for the recreation of the warrior. All else is folly." Uh, <laughs> and so when you're like you know 17, 18, and you're kind of hanging around that kind of culture. You know, it, it kind of, and then you just kind of Christianize it a little bit. And, you know, I, I, I loved, I had my exegesis of 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15 worked out, you know, Gar Adam, for Adam was born first. So men are, are, are created to lead, women are created to be led. Uh, because obviously they were the ones deceived, they're more gullible, they're emotionally um unstable and that type of thing and you know the apostles were all guys and everything like that and, and so forth what really um 
undermined that for me was when I once attended a lecture by a, a brilliant Methodist scholar called Ben Witherington. And if you know, if you've read any commentaries on the New Testament, you've probably got one of his. And he gave a fantastic lecture one year at Morling College in Sydney on Romans 16. And he kind of went through and showed all, all the women and, and what they were, what, what was going on. So you had, you had a, um, uh, you know, you've got Phoebe who delivered the letter to the Romans, who was more than just the FedEx delivery lady. She probably had some role, maybe not in like publicly reading, but, you know, seeing that the contents of the letter were put into uh, effect. Uh, you've also got, you know, um, you know, a junior who is a, uh, an, an apostle. Um, you've also got Priscilla and Aquila and a whole bunch of other women who get named in, in Romans 16 as well. You know, Mary, who is a co-worker, which is the same language. And then you've got like in Colossae, you've got Nympha and the church that meets in her house. You've got, you know, Chloe's people in 1 Corinthians. And then you've got in the Old Testament, you've got Deborah. And I'm starting to think that all these prohibitions that I had lined up simply could not be mapped into the Pauline churches. And then there was another thing I saw, I think that this summed it up, um, African-American theologian, Anthony Bradley, uh, he, he, he once tweeted something which I think summed up so much of it. He said, what goes under the name biblical manhood and womanhood is really white affluent suburban culture. Okay, it's white. So the idea that the dad works and the mum stays at home, that's very good for post-World War II America, where all the guys came home from the war, they got jobs in the factories, and the ladies, you know, raised kids and did the groceries. That does not work. I've got students from Sudan, and that does not work in Sudan. Uh, it does not work, you know, in the, um, right in the villages of Vietnam. So a lot of the biblical manhood, it really is... A, uh, a cultural expression of, of patriarchy with a Christian gloss. And, you know, once you see that it, it, it's, it's artificial, it's constructed, it's imposed, uh, then you can see it's, it's not real. And the biblical world is probably a little bit more complex, a bit more you know, contestable as well. But what certain people consider the clear teaching of the Bible uh, is really just a projection of their own cultural situation onto the Bible. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to accept that when you hear it, it's a, a pretty hard truth to, to get, but, you know, otherwise, how do you explain what all the women in the early church are doing? You, you, you can't, you can't. And that's why I kind of had to say um, farewell to my um, complementarian tribe and uh, I identify as what you might broadly call egalitarian. Okay. So um, there's a lot in the culture. I mean, I know you're in, australia and there's we're in like the north america the west the north north america and and so i'm I'm sure you see the same thing in 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 you know quote-unquote developed societies there's there's a lot in the culture um when it comes to the concept of gender um and as i've come to see it uh there's a lot in the culture right now that would deny that there is a maybe not fully but they would deny a lot of the differentiation between men and women. Um, uh, so I, so I've listened to different perspectives and I noticed that how there is definitely a case made from say the evolutionary uh, biologist standpoint for how there are, you know, two biological sexes and that people who belong to their respective sex, be that male or female uh, naturally have adapted to their, surroundings environment uh in relation to their biology which involves their physiology and the and you know the parts they have and and that has played out all through history in the cultural norms surrounding male and female um and as i see it that is in one end that that's kind of a perfectly normal thing to take place and it doesn't mean i believe in like a rigidity of gender roles to the extent that you know little joey can't play with dolls or little girl Susie can't play with you know toy trucks or something but but men and women can do whatever they want as far as I'm concerned but but still we see general tendencies that we see distinct um perhaps the men and women uh, it's I mean sociological textbooks even 10 years ago were still saying that type of thing um it's just the phenomenon we see but 
But when you look at the Bible specifically, the New Testament, and specifically the letters of Paul, which are, you know, they're written to churches. And so these are relevant for how we should see and envision the church. Um, you note in your book how Paul, um, there's insights to take from the New Testament. You note how, how Paul respected and celebrated on one end the distinctions between sexes because he sees that distinction as part of the creation of God, along with a full incorporation, though, of women and their gifts. And I'm quoting that part. I mean, you talk about a full incorporation of women and their gifts into the experience of the worshiping community. So so this seems like kind of a complementarianism of sorts, but not like a strict one, because um, it's also it's inclusive women, women in the middle. Can you explain kind of the, because I know you had kind of a, you, you laid out kind of there's a continuum or like a spectrum of positions on this. And you say egalitarian, how how does that play with it? Are there milder forms of complementarianism that are involved perhaps in that um, stance you just stated? Yeah, I think we should acknowledge the differences between men and women. And that, I mean, that's a bi it's biological. It's not just a reproductive function. Those biological differences do find uh, general psychological and sociological expression. And this is why women are generally more attracted to professions which include nurturing, caring, and social interaction. Men generally are more, you know, taken to um, tasks where they get to problem solve, build things, you know, blow things up, build, you, know, you know, that kind of thing. So you're more likely, you know, women on, in general, are more likely to be a nurse than an, and, and men are more likely to be an engineer. Now, again, I said that's general because we both know male nurses and we both know female engineers. Right. Uh, but in general, uh, those things will be uh, applied. Now, that means I think the word complementarity is a good word. Uh, I think there are complementarian um, aspects between men and women in the sense that we complement one another because there are those biological differences that do find a social expression. So yeah, the idea of a, of a complementarity between the sexes is a good idea. The issue is where you think the complementarity creates a hierarchy between male and female. And now that's the point I would contest. Difference does not mean inferiority or superiority. Different just means different. Simply because an, an apple is not an orange does not mean the apple has authority over the oranges. Mm -hmm. uh, they may have, you know, different functions in your fruit salad. You know, one may be a, a kind of acidic sweet and another one may be a kind of sour sweet or, you know, whatever the, the taste sensation you get from fruit. But it doesn't mean there's a hierarchy between them. And that's what I, I've, we've got to be careful of. We can acknowledge the creational differences between men and women. But once you translate them, that you know, men by nature have authority and women by nature are ruled. I can tell you, and we all know this intuitively, down the track, that's going to lead to some very, very bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um the uh one of the one of the things that I, I find if you were just to take this passage in isolation alone, well, not in isolation, because there's other uh passages i believe that that can can definitely lend itself to the support of of women in ministry um but definitely one is with uh the one that involves uh priscilla and aquila uh where they hear of a from acts where they hear of apollos who um you know as as acts says a learned man thorough knowledge of the scriptures he'd been instructed in the way of the lord he spoke with great fervor taught about jesus accurately but uh, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, you know, explained to him, ex at least when it came to the understanding of the apostolic message as uh, in regards to baptism, um, it, it seems it, it seems like in the text there that he didn't quite have a grasp on that, that um, the, the full grasp needed to adequately preach that. And so Priscilla and Aquila basically take him to the side and kind of like, give them some teaching on that and um is that not a good argument for uh women teaching or perhaps preaching um you know a wife bringing her husband to the better understanding of the apostolic message um 
is it a slam dunk case that passage alone is it um have there been you know what, what would be some objections to it um i'm just curious to pick you yeah, well, i was having an argument with a guy on twitter about this you know all good arguments happen on twitter and i pointed out that the text says that they you know which is third person plural they explained to apollos all the things he needed to know um it didn't mean that uh, Priscilla are taught under the authority of her husband, Aquila. That's not what it says. It's that, or she was allowed to kind of, you know, or Aquila did the teaching why uh, Priscilla kind of, you know, brought the cookies. That's that's not what it says. It says yeah. they, plural, explained. And there's no differentiation made between roles and authority. They both had a role in teaching Apollos in a bit of private instruction to bring him up to speed on the gospel story and as it uh, applied and worked out in the mission of the church so mm -hmm. i mean th there is no slam dunk if there was a slam dunk we probably wouldn't be having this debate you know, i think romans 16 is a slam dunk i've got some friends who think 1 timothy 2 11 to 15 they think that's the slam dunk mm -hmm. uh, we can keep dunking on each other but i think we've got to look at the broad phenomenon of scripture and what it says and what are and also what i think are the dare i say the trajectories or the implications we have to work out from it because you know we obviously don't live in ancient greece we don't live in ancient ephesus you know we're not having debates about food sacrifice to idols we're not having debates about you know uh having to wear head coverings you know you know we we have debates about I mean, well, some people have debates about other weird things like whether whether women should wear yoga pants and other real deep theological topics of discussion uh, and that and that type of thing. But yeah, we, there, there is a gap between the ancient world and ours, and we've got to be conscious of that as we attempt to apply scripture to our own context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always found the the Romans sixteen um, argument really interesting so I, I took a class in college um I, I double majored in college and religious studies and in spanish and so one of the professors that i had taught a class on paul and he made quite a bit uh, of a deal about phoebe um being referred to as a diaconos yeah the masculine noun um there's no feminization or, or sort of neologism there it's she's referred to as a diaconos which is the specific term used um in the pastorals if memory serves for for that particular order of ministry yeah um, that's right well yeah i mean she could be like it could be i mean diaconos can also be used in the very general and broad sense of servant you know in the sense that you know um anyone in the laity can be a servant of the church uh, but if it's meant in a technical sense of a deacon, and that's the way Paul uses it in Philippians 1, where he, this is this is probably the only place where Paul really explicitly describes church offices is in Philippians, where he talks about the overseers and deacons, if, you know, if I remember um, correctly. That's, that's the only explicit. He doesn't mention church offices in 1 Corinthians, which is a little bit baffling if there was some head honcho running the show like a, an overall pastor, but he doesn't seem to mention that. Uh, but yeah, he does mention that Phoebe is a uh, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to the, I read an article from, uh, Ian. Well, Ian Paul, I read his blog, and and um, you know, I I, I typically for like because he follows the lectionary real well, and 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 I, I but I did I come across um some of his some of his stances on on some of these things i don't know what his stance on women's ordination is for certain but um it, but he uh i do remember where uh for him i guess first timothy 212 um was significant for him to to not be able to see how in romans 16 phoebe being a letter carrier um it, it he, he couldn't see how or he didn't see the evidence for i guess based on research done that she could have been any more than a letter carrier I, i'm just wondering what's um what what's what's the what was the custom then as far as like a, a woman carrying a letter did they yeah. actually open up the contents and proclaim it or was it they were just merely the deliverer i i don't know 
It's, I'm yeah, I mean, at, at one level, we're not told. And so there is a degree of inference, or some would say speculation. Now, there are some people who want to speculate, I think, to the nth degree, and they say, you know, Phoebe then went house to house, preaching Paul's letter to the Romans. So, you know, and then she went from every house, you know, five or so house churches in Rome, and she went to all of them, reading this letter, preaching it kind of thing, and, you know, the like. Uh, then there are other people who say, you know, Phoebe just literally handed off the letter to, you know, the nearest Roman Christian and said, like, you know, later, um, and then just headed back to, you know, Corinth or something like that. Uh, the best thing that I think that's been written on this is by Peter Head. He's an Australian scholar who lives in the UK. And I think he makes a very good point. The purpose of letter carriers is they probably wouldn't read the letter. You could get either either the recipient would read it himself or herself, or there would be a slave who would read the letter to the master. So I don't think Phoebe went around reading this letter to all the congregations the same way like you you might read out, you know, Abraham's, you know, declaration of freeing all the neighbors. So um uh Abraham Lincoln's declaration of freeing all the slaves would get you know read out to all the various you know, farms and plantations in the American South, you know, when that happened. I don't think it was kind of like that. But what we do know, delegates of letters, their job was largely to see that the contents of the letter were put into effect. So they were, they were not readers or preachers of, of the letter. Their job was to mediate on behalf of the letter sender. So Phoebe's uh, mission, I think, was not just to deliver the letter, it was to see the contents of the letter were put into effect. Now, this comes down to what you think the purpose of the Romans is, and it's largely, I think, Paul's charm offensive to win the Roman congregations over, and this is congregations he did not plant. There, we, we could call them, you know, um, para-Pauline churches. I mean, there are some, Paul knows some people there, like Priscilla and Aquila, but these are not his um, congregational offspring. And so he's launching a bit of a charm offensive because he wants the Roman churches to support him as he goes to Spain. And as he returns to Jerusalem, he wants all the Gentile churches to be behind him. So they're all singing off the same sheet of gospel music. And for that reason, he sends of all people, not Timothy, not Titus, not Silas, he sends Phoebe. And she's going to deliver the letter and she's going to hopefully see that they capture the Pauline uh, vision of um, the apostolic mission to the Gentiles, and they'll be inclined to support Paul and his mission. Now, that means if anyone had any questions about the letter, uh, Phoebe would be the point of contact. So what does, what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? Uh, what's this, who's this wretched man, you know, halfway through the letter? Is that Paul talking about himself? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd love to hear from Phoebe on that one. Um, you know, so, so what is Paul's view of Israel? Is, is Paul saying the law a good thing or a bad thing? And, you know, the kind of stuff like that. So that, that what I think is a very uh, realistic account of what letter carriers would do, not just the delivery person, but I don't think Phoebe necessarily went around preaching Romans at every church. Her job was to see that the contents of the letter were put into effect and to try, uh, do what the letter does, persuade the Roman congregations to support Paul and his apostolic mission, which I think would require um, towing Paul's line in the very least or defending Paul and, and you know expl explaining Paul's words uh, in light of his absence. Mm -hmm. And um, well, yeah, like you were saying, if um, she heard it, you know, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, or you know, she she was in contact with the with the author of it, and so when she goes to see others and they don't know um, him to the extent that she did, and the natural questions that might arise she would be just be the one to clarify and explain things um if she's exactly. going exactly. yeah if she's going around like with the same letter like are they like it's i'm just kind of curious like what because you're the new testament scholar were, were those could those have been because she she has a letter but she has to take that same scroll to the next place were they then uh reader you know yeah we don't know for sure. Again, because the, I mean, the average the average letter in antiquity is about the length of Philemon. Okay, the average letter is kind of like you know, FYI, the crops have been very good. I'll be sending a couple of slaves with a big wagon to drop off the next load of barley in your place. For that, <laughs> you'll owe me, you know, 
60 denarii or something. That's, that's the average length of, of a letter. What Paul writes to the Romans is more like a letter essay. Okay, so it's more like a short treatise or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, people probably early on, I think people probably would have made copies of it or at least copies of parts of it, perhaps. And, you know, and kept it. And, and eventually it seems to have taken on some sort of liturgical use or become part of a broader Pauline letter collection that may have been formed in, I don't know, Ephesus, Rome or somewhere like that. But it's very likely that, you know, if people had the means, they would have made a copy of this letter you know, reasonably soon. I have a question for you about this, um, Dr. Bird. So remember, this is coming from someone whose wife is ordained. So don't shoot the uh, the the messenger here or the, the, the question asker. But um, so Phoebe was sent with a letter entrusted with the responsibility of seeing that the contents of the letter were put into effect. How do you square this then with Paul or if someone doesn't accept Pauline authorship of first Timothy um, the question in first Timothy that's raised or the, the statement that's um, clearly expressed that women are to remain quiet in church. Uh, yeah. I, well, the, the silence thing occurs in a few places, like in one Corinthians uh, where I think it's there. I think it's about women, you know, maybe being distracted or disturbing things going on. Like, you know, and, and assume that the, the men and women may be on separate sides of the room. Mm -hmm. Some guy speaking in tongues and some lady says to her husband, hey, Frank, what's this guy babbling about? You know, <laughs> you know it could be something, could be something, you know, innocuous as that. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2, and I mean, let's, let's assume for the, I mean, it's, it's disputed, but let's assume that Paul uh, or at least someone from his circle wrote it. Mm -hmm. What are they prohibiting? Now, if you take it in the most extreme sense that women can never speak in front of men or never have any level of authority, there is so much of Paul's letters that doesn't make sense because we know women are at least prophesying. And yeah. the last time I checked, prophesying was had some degree of authority about it. Yeah. Uh, there seem to be women who are house church leaders. Now, some will dispute saying, well, they were patrons, they were not pastors. Uh, maybe that may that, that that distinction may hold, but I think other places it doesn't hold. Um, that's another story. Um, I think what Paul is doing in uh, one Timothy two is that he's dealing with the local situation. So there seems to be some specific thing that's happening now. People uh, have argued it may because of the large influence of the Artemis cult in Ephesus. I'm currently reading a book on that very topic by, I believe, I hope I don't get the name wrong, uh, Sandra Galan, uh, called Nobody's Mother, which is about, you know, the cult of Artemis and the Ephesians and how that maybe provides a backdrop to 1 Timothy 2. Uh, I think that's, a, I think that's a, a pretty good thesis because there's a level of specificity in 1 Timothy 2 that is weird. I mean, and for me, the real clue is where you read those words and women will be saved through childbirth. Now, if you take that literally, that would mean either A, that women are not saved unless they have a baby go down the birth canal. Uh, what does that mean for, you know, um, women who are single uh, or infertile? Does that mean they can't be saved? Does it mean B, that no woman will ever die in childbirth? Well, again, we know that's not true. Christian women can do and did die in childbirth. Or some people take it as a metaphorical level. Save through childbirth means recognizing the inherent nature of male authority, which, which becomes a, a somewhat, um, how can I put it, labored allegorical reading that I cannot uh, countenance as a serious answer. Or there's a fourth option, this is about an in-house debate that's going on in Ephesus, and we're we're only hearing this one side, hearing this one side of it, and we're hearing like a little motto, which we which we don't understand what the motto is about or what the context is. I mean, let me let me give an example. On the weekend, I took my um my youngest son. We sat down and watched the Terminator movies, and you Hold get on. that bit where Arnold Schwarzenegger goes into the police station and says, "I'll be back." <laughs> and when, when he says that, my son has an epiphany. He goes, oh, that's where that phrase comes from. Because he'd seen it everywhere in GIFs and memes, but he'd never seen the original movie. 
So when, when you hear women will be saved through childbirth, it's kind of like, I'll be back. It's this little catchphrase, this little, you know, saying of, of someone that is being put into this context and, and Paul is using it. Now, maybe there were some people who saying uh, women will be saved through childbirth. And, uh, you know, people want to say, is that talking about the, you know, the Mary's birth of Jesus or is it some, or people are saying that, you know, we need to go back and be like Eve. We need, we need to be saved from childbirth by being, you know, celibate. We need to be more spiritual than sexual. We've got to get away from the material world. We've got to start saying no to our husband's sexual advances. You know, we've got to be, you know, purely, you know, have our minds on a heavenly plane. We've got to embrace that type of thing. We will be saved from childbirth and we'll be saved properly. Maybe that's a view or something like that is being sprouted in Ephesus. So Paul kind of reiterates it, but switches it and says, no, you'll be saved through childbirth, you know, because, you know, being a human being, a bodily human being with your reproductive functions, men or, or women is all good. So I think there's a debate going on and we're just hearing this one little catchphrase about it. And Paul doesn't want women spruiking this sort of, you know, whatever bizarre view it is, whether they've just taken something from the Artemis cult and kind of wrapped up some Christian wrapping paper on it and then are trying to, you know, sell it to the congregation. It's something like that that is going on because there is a, a specificity here that is out of sync with the wider New Testament, certainly with the rest of Paul's letters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What is your uh, favorite Terminator movie out of curiosity? Uh, well, I think do think the first one is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I do think I think it was good. Uh, but I thought the second one is good. You can see the quality of the special effects improves markedly uh, uh, yes. between between, 19, sure. between 1984 to what was it? 1993, I think was the second one. 92. 92. So the, um, yeah. the special effects increases markedly. Like uh, when you we, we, in, in, the, in the first Terminator movie, they've got basically got like a dummy doing all the thing, you know, you know, when Arnie is tinkering with his eye, you can see it's basically a dummy and it looks a little bit cringy now. We'd probably do it now with CGI. Uh, but when you go from number, number one to number two, you can see the special effects have improved by a generation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a hard one. Um, I do like that the plot twist where Arnie becomes the good guy, the Terminator becomes the good guy and mm -hmm. he develops these human characteristics uh, you know, probably the best bit where he's, he has to promise not to shoot anyone. And, uh, you know, John kind of says, I told you, I told you not to kill anyone. <laughs> and he goes, he will live, you know. Kind of. <laughs> um, you've got, you've got those sorts of things going on. Yeah. I, I love T1, uh, T1. And no one calls it that, but it's kind of like a, it's kind of an indie film for its time. I mean, you know, it was, it was before, um, uh, it just had a, it, you could tell the limited the limits they were working within, but it, they just really made a good um, high strung chase, you know, simple, you know, uh, movie out of that. That was really I just find it very entertaining. But yeah, uh, Ter Terminator Two just just upped the ante a lot. So uh, sorry, I mean, definitely nothing everything after two is everything <laughs> after that was a waste of effort. Everything <laughs> after, after that, that was just a waste. Yeah. Um, so I know we only have you on for for a little bit more time, and and um, so it looks like we may get to, we will we will definitely now be able to get to the to one more topic um, that we wanted to pick Mike Bird's brain about. And by the way, what did you want to title? Usually, I ask this after the episode, but I'm trying to I, I try to think of creative titles if I can for the episodes and. But I don't want to say picking the bird brain because you are uh, an extraordinarily intelligent, <laughs> sorry, a renowned sorry scholar. So I'm not going to soaring with the falcon. Soaring with the falcon. That's good. Wait, say say that again. Soaring with the falcon. Soaring with the falcon. That is perfect. Well, we will name it that. Um, so uh, continue, continuing to soar with the falcon. Um, I'm really excited about this one. You have been a frequent uh, voice of opposition to arguments of Bart Ehrman. And you have Bart have, you and Bart have debated. Um, and I mean, that's like usually when I see you, you're in like a YouTube video with famous people. So again, 
it's amazing having you on Zoom with us. <laughs> um, but you and Bart have debated. And, and well, first, what was that like? What was debating Bart Ehrman like? <laughs> if you don't think oh, you'll was, was talking about this. It was a it was a kind of little bit like having a um you know lightsaber fight with Darth Vader, um you know it was. Uh, and just to be clear, I'm not the Darth Vader in this analogy, in case people oh, want. Definitely. No, look, you know, Bart is a very very capable um scholar. The way I describe Bart, and this was probably a little bit of an inside nerd joke, he's a cross between F. C. Bauer and P. T. Barnum. So he's like F. C. Bauer was a kind of very um, how do you want to say it? Not ultra liberal, but ultra critical biblical scholar right. who was kind of like, you know, rewriting the history of early Christianity, deconstructing all the old dogmas. Mm. And then P.T. Barnum was the guy who invented the circus. So he's, he's a little bit of a celebrity skeptic and he's got just the, the right amount of um, academic acumen. So he's you know, quite a good scholar, particularly in his area of expertise, which is textual criticism. But he's also got a, a good little bit of showmanship about him. And, you know, all of his books kind of begin with, well, I used to be a stupid fundamentalist and believed, but now let me tell you what I really learned, the things that they don't want you to know about at the Vatican or, you know, something like that. So he, 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 he crafts a good story and he, he reaches, you know, a, a bunch of people uh, with it. And, and, and again, let me be honest, you know, a, a lot of what he writes, I think is correct. Some of it is partly correct some of it is just um balderdash um, mm -hmm. and it's just not always you know knowing which is what so what, what is the bit the stuff that's true what's the stuff like well yeah maybe or kind of sort of and then there's the stuff like you know dude you be totes cray cray <laughs> uh, and his book his book is full of all three of those things yeah i i <laughs> fell under the spell of airman probably like kind of middle college i mean a couple of years before i went to seminary and when i when i actually had some i didn't do religious studies in undergrad like james so but when i when i actually eventually did have some theological training i was able to detect the, the where an airman uh, was like, okay this is the, the mainstream consensus yeah nothing wrong here this is this follows and then see okay this is where he's now using that or exploiting that to to provoke or to you know um and so and he was a he's able to attract unlike most mainstream biblical scholars he's able yep. to attract mass uh audience yep. and um and and get them to really just um and, and, and you know in my opinion yeah it misleads a lot of people though i think he yeah he seems like a a, a pleasant guy off stage to be around in, uh, oh yeah he's he's um he's very very personable very polite um he can be quite uh, as a debate i mean he's a skilled debater and he mm -hmm. also knows how uh how to um he knows the right chords to hit mm -hmm. and you know how, how to how to how to read a room how to make an argument so he's 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 very good as a written and oral communicator which is which is a fairly good good skill um when i debated him i mean what i rem what i mean one thing i learned is you don't have to win the argument. You only have to win the audience. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I just do what right. I normally did, which is basically 80% stand up comedy with 20% kind of history of early Christianity. And, you know, you're always going to win. I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you get some, someone debating someone like Stephen Colbert, um, you know, it could be for anything, but you know, when <laughs> if Stephen Colbert is cracking jokes, he's always going to win. So I don't know, maybe that, maybe that, maybe that trivializes the whole debate, but I was just there to have a good time and have a bit of fun. And, uh, and Bart was a pretty good sport about it. We, we kind of, you know, had a good, good discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's a little bit on the personal side for me, because I actually have some friends who were led away from the faith by airmen at, at Chapel Hill. Um, so, uh, I, am not a huge fan. Um, I think if you get into textual criticism, you'd be far better to, to deal with somebody like Bruce Metzger um, uh, than, than Bart Ehrman. Uh, I think that some of the showmanship in his writing and in his speaking um, can, uh, can, can dwarf actually what he has to say, especially when 
um, a fair amount of what he has to say about early Christianity is just warmed over 19th century German liberal scholarship that's been debunked for, you know, quite a while. Um, I'd say the same thing about Reza Aslan, um, to be completely honest. But um, so so I uh, <clears throat> I can appreciate that that as Dr. Burr was saying, that there are certainly some things that he gets spot on. I mean, you know, he's one of the only non-Christian uh, scholars uh, in that area um, that I know of who has vehemently argued for the existence of Jesus. Um, you know, that's, I thought was. Uh, yeah. And he, he got stripped of a humanist award for doing that. Right. Oh, I did not know that. Gave, some, some humanist society gave him an award for advocating skepticism or atheism. But then when he said, no, there really was a historical Jesus, they stripped him of his award. <laughs> I can't believe that is amazing. Wow. That is, I, yeah. Well, I mean, it just goes to say, you know, Craig Cray lives on both sides of the lake, man. There's yeah. Craig Cray on both sides of the lake. Right. Uh, well, my, and like my it, number one. I was going to say the way, the, 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 basically the tone he had when he wrote that book is like, why do I even have to write this? <laughs> it's like, I can't believe yeah. it. But he realized yeah, there's, at least in the uh, my, online culture, there's a a significant number of people denying the existence of Jesus. Yeah, so. G G let me tell you, <laughs> Jesus mythicism is QAnon for atheists. Mm -hmm. That's why I describe it. I think the number one area to get Ehrman is that his works in total don't make any sense. So let me give you an example of what I mean. So he writes one book saying that the manuscripts of the New Testament are unreliable. They're late, they're corrupted. And I remember hearing him say repeatedly at a, at a paper, he says, you know, you know, we can't talk about the word of God. We don't know what the original words even were. Okay, by the way, that's how all Americans sound to me, in case you're wondering. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so he says, you know, the manuscripts are messed up. And then you'll have another book saying the Gospels are full of contradictions. You don't know about them because they're kind of hidden. And then he'll say the oral tradition between the Gospels, it's not particularly reliable, okay? So you can't really untrust it. It's kind of like a game of Chinese whispers or something like that. And people, people's memories get messed up over the decades. So he says, so that, so the text are corrupted, the Gospels are contradictory, the oral tradition, you know, that the Gospels are based on is fluid and unreliable. And then he writes a book about the historical Jesus, using the Gospels as his main source. Right. And it's like, right. well, which, which of these do you believe? Which of these books? Because if these books are correct, you can't write about the historical Jesus. You can't write an account of the Apostle Paul. You can't write about the origins of early Christianity because you've literally just, just you know, eviscerated the sources that you're using. And that's why I think the number one criticism of Ehrman is um, what he, the, the nature of his skepticism will vary from book to book based on the topic that he's writing on. Right. So, and, and I think that's important. And his, his overall corpus of writings does not have a great coherence to it. Uh, that's because he's, he's doing two things. He's giving skeptics a sense of assurance that you don't have to take this Christian thing too uh, seriously. And he also knows the buttons to push to get evangelicals very irate. And he also knows some of the things where, which will put um, Bible believing people on the back foot. And that's what he d does very well. Um, and again, he's a very entertaining uh, both person and writer, but that's, that's kind of his, um, his deal, if you like. And unless, unless you know that, then you don't really know what the best way is to confront him because he knows he knows the Bible, he knows the scholarship, and he knows the evangelical world, mm -hmm. and he knows to how to how to kind of play the two off against each other in in a in a very good way, and he's and he's done it quite successfully. Mm -hmm. And uh, Doctor Ehrman, if you're listening, with all due respect, we we you know you you are invited to come on the show too anytime. So. We'll probably have a huge jump in listenership if we brought Bart Ehrman on. So, if so, we hope we're not offending you. But, but well, one thing I wanted to bring up on that time was one thing that Bart typically argues uh, is that we cannot, uh, if we, you know, honestly look and read many of the New Testament books, uh, it isn't very clear that uh, Jesus is necessarily identified as God in them. For instance, he would say, at least a lot of critical scholars would say in general three of the four gospels matthew mark and luke have a you know low christology meaning 
you know, while Jesus is clearly important, it's, you, you can go as far as to say he's set aside from the rest of humanity. Hey, he has this unique and mediating part, perhaps, in bringing in the yeah. kingdom of God. He can be rightfully called Lord, even Messiah. Nowhere does that necessarily equate to Jesus actually being um, God. And so um, well, actually, I guess I what would be the problem that's... with uh, yeah. well, that? I have to qualify your views. I don't think that's quite what Ammon's arguing. Okay. He would argue that Jesus is God, and it's a matter of in what sense do they attribute divinity. So he doesn't think that it's a low Christology, then you get a high Christology with John. Okay. Ammon would say Jesus was regarded as divine pretty much from the beginning, at least from his resurrection. He's regarded as divine. And, and this is, to be honest, where I think I should have given more credit to Ammon. Uh, it's in what sense he was divine, because there's different senses of being divine in antiquity. Okay. So he could be divine like an angel. That's what, and that's what Ammon, are, Ammon argues that Paul thought of Jesus as a kind of super duper angel, mm -hmm. um, or else in the Gospels he's kind of like a human being who is exalted or adopted to a divine status. And then you've got like the Gospel of John that then makes him pre-existent. So these are all types of divinity, but they're different different ways of being divine. And what Ammon does, he says, look, they did think he was divine but he wasn't divine in the same sense that the God of Israel was divine. There were all these lesser senses. There's kind of like a hierarchy yeah, or, a, or a, like a pyramid of divinity and people are putting Jesus uh, as divine at different points in that pyramid. So that, that, that's, that's probably the, a better way to, I think, to represent what Bart says, but clearly, I mean, as you did allude to, he doesn't think that Jesus is divine in a full uh, and worked out sense and his divine is the same way that God the Father is divine. What would you say to to make the case that Jesus is divine in the in the same way as God the Father is? Well, I, I would point out a number of things that a, a lot of the biblical texts used to describe the God of Israel are applied directly to Jesus. And this is where you get those wonderful texts like Philippians two six to eleven, the Christ hymn or the Christ poem, where the language of Isaiah forty five, which is full of you know very clear monotheistic rhetoric from Israel's you know, ancient religion or its, its cultus, its, its monotheism is being applied to Jesus. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, you take the Shema, you know, John 6, 4, Hear, mm -hmm. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They take that and put Jesus in the middle of it. So, you know, I mean, again, there's a few different ways you can understand that, but they're clearly identifying Jesus uh, not as, you know, the, the God of Israel, but he's being identified with with God's activity in the world and the very, the who, who God is, is now being answered in relation to the person of Jesus, the son of God and the Messiah. So I think that is a very strong identification of Jesus with the God of Israel, while simultaneously being something of a different agent. Uh, and then this is, this is where the, if you like the complexity, the mystery, the debates begin, how can Jesus be identified with the God of Israel, but be a separate person or a separate agent? Is he subordinate, inferior? And you've got, you know, all those sorts of things being debated. So, I mean, that's, that's how I would respond to it and simply contest like some of his readings. Like he thinks that Paul perceives Jesus as an angel who became human. I just don't think that's the case at all. Uh, he thinks in the gospel of Mark, Jesus, you know, when Jesus gets baptized, this is a voice that says, you are my son. Uh, that's an adoption scene. Uh, the problem is there's a voice in the Gospel of Mark three times, at the baptism, at the transfiguration, and then at the cross, which would, if, if a voice saying, you are my son, or this is the son of God, is a divine adoption, it means Jesus gets adopted three times, which I just don't think uh, is what Mark is doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I know, I know we're uh, running short on time, so I had two things that I wanted to mention. Um, one, I, I think my favorite quotation that I've ever heard you say has got to be, Dr. Bird, when you said, I think it was back in 2013, I'm reformed because people suck. <laughs> uh, well, the, yeah, the, the precise quote, people say, why are you a Calvinist? I, I, I explain people Calvinism because Calvinism gets a bad rap. Right. People think of Calvinism as someone who is, who is afraid that somewhere, somehow, somebody is smiling. You right. know, that's one right. definition of Calvinism. Right. 
I define my Calvinism this way. People suck. They suck in their sins. They are suckiness unto death. And the God who is rich in mercy saves them when they cannot save themselves. That is the sum of my Calvinism. Everything else is commentary. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, and then the other thing is, I actually was exposed to your work um, in a um, in a, a a piece that you wrote um, when Paul Holloway took some cheap shots at um, N.T. Wright. Um, this was when I was in seminary, and I I read it and I thought, man, this guy is really astute um, because I read Paul Holloway's um, diatribe and then um, you know saw how it had pretty much, you know, I, I, I think Bishop Wright had responded um, to it and everything. Um, and at the time, I was a huge, huge fan of N.T. Wright. I still like him, um, but but I'm um, far more Lutheran now than I once was. Um, <laughs> so I think John Barclay would uh, would win in an argument between him and, and Tom Wright. But, um, uh-oh, I, I think well, I opened maybe, up a can of worms. Maybe. Well, no, I do, I do, I do appreciate John Barclay stuff. And I, I felt he's bringing, uh, I felt Barclay had bring us to a bit of an equilibrium between the old reformed versus new perspective debate. I, I remember like in the mid noughties, hearing a paper by John Barclay when you're still working this stuff out. And it sounded like a banner of truth um, paper. You'd get like, you know, at, at a conference like Puritans are us. <laughs> or something like that, what he was saying. Um, Can I call the episode about... Puritans Are Us? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I remember thinking, man, this is, this sounds like more like a, if anyone knows who Banner of Truth are, this sounded right. more yeah. like a Banner yeah. of Truth kind of paper, but it was by a very respected Pauline scholar. Um, now, Barclay's work is very, I mean, we could, ha we could have a, oh my. Hey guys, I need to, can we pause? I need to take this call. You're, you're okay. We'll pause. Give me a sec. He has uh, a book about Ulysses S. Grant on his uh, bookshelf. Oh, yes, you're right. I, I see I see that. I can't recognize anything else. It kind of looks like... He's got, he's got Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Um, yeah, he's got all the Christian origin series on the far left. Do you see... Uh, maybe we'll leave this in the episode if he doesn't mind. <laughs> Hey, listeners, we are looking at Mike Bird's bookshelf right now. Just, It looks like Phantom of the Opera in the middle. It's like a half white mask, kind of like the... Yeah, 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 definitely. Broadway definitely. version. I'm curious. I can't zoom in. Can I zoom in? If I um, touch the screen and use my fingers. <laughs> Is it like an not. iPhone? <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh... This should be the bloopers at the end of the episode. This is hilarious. I think Dr. Bird would be all about us leaving this in. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um... Hi, this is Drew. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to you, our listeners, for giving your time to listen to Dolph protest too much. This podcast is approaching three years now, three years old, and I've been just really blessed with great guests who have come on. Uh, I've been blessed with our co-hosts, James, Stephen, and Charlie for giving their time to really make this show a team effort and just adding so much to it. I think I can speak for our listeners um, who have really enjoyed your presence on the show. And I prayerfully and excitingly look forward to more years of Doth Protest Too Much, as we will continue to appreciate the Reformation and the theology and history of the church. And I want to tell you about a couple other podcasts that I highly recommend. They don't know we're giving them shout outs, but if you enjoy the content of this show, you will love, if you haven't already, the podcast called Queen of the Sciences. Uh, Queen of the Sciences, and the subtitle of that is Conversations Between a Theologian and Her Dad. Well, who is the theologian and who is the dad? Well, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and her dad, who is definitely also a theologian, Dr. Paul R. Hinlicky. Paul Hinlicky is a Luther scholar, a theologian, and also my supervisor in my doctoral program. If you are interested in what theologians have had to say about the COVID lockdown of 2020, books of the Bible, Martin Luther, and Martin Luther King Jr., the vastness of outer space and the likelihood of meeting aliens, why N.T. Wright is right and wrong, uh, Cybertech, and some of Canterbury, Critical Social Theory, that was my favorite episode, by the way. Well, Paul and Sarah do episodes on all of those subjects and more. 
And also, if you like listening to me, and it's okay if you don't, we got others here on Doth Protest who are probably more fun to listen to. Uh, well, okay, maybe you listen like listening to Stephen, who's been on this show. Well, do we have a show for you? That's right. Stephen and I and our friend Michael are starting a podcast where once a month we come on and chat about movies that we like. Yeah, not heavy theological stuff, but lighthearted chats, and I'm sure some heavy, heavy discussions too. Uh, though none of us are serious film critics. But we just come on and we talk about movies that we like. The podcast is called Film Gumbo. That's right. The second word is The Stew from Louisiana. Our first episode is out now. It's We get on and we discussed uh, The Lost City of Z, Inglorious Bastards, and The Revenant. And we just had fun with it. And we look forward to next month when we do our next episode. So check out our new podcast, Film Gumbo, currently on Spotify, but will be on more platforms uh, soon. And as well as Paul Hinlicky and Sarah Hinlicky Wilson's podcast, Queen of the Sciences. You can search for that wherever you stream your podcasts. And of course, we'll continue to enjoy you tuning in to Dolph Protest too much. Thanks. Okay, um, I'm I'm back, guys. The good thing. Oh, you're, you're so, um, Doctor, we promised we'll be done. The good news is having taken that phone call means I can do an extra 10 minutes. Oh, okay. Oh. I was going to say, we can wrap up in a couple minutes. We don't mean to take more of your time and we and we tried to wrap it up before that so we're sorry but but while you were gone we were um talking about your bookshelf uh uh james was like oh i see a USSS grant book and he noticed and then i noticed do you have a phantom of the opera book is that a the oh uh, no that's a that's a phantom of the opera mask okay i was um yeah was, okay cool just the mask i went to the musical and began before I joined the army, I wanted to write musicals for a living. Can you believe? Um, I had no so, idea. And you got the got the Grant. Um, I, I love the um the Hamilton biography by um Cherno. Uh, I thought that was great. Okay. So, and the uh, the uh, Grant biography was pretty good too. Hmm. Yeah, well, who wrote the Grant one? Uh, same guy, Cherno. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I, I remember the old Bruce Canton. That, that's the I remember reading that by Grant long ago. Um, yeah so that's an old classic but yeah um cool so I, i'm sorry james you you were uh, in the middle of a question uh, uh we can resume with that and um and let dr uh, no, I, I was being schooled about um about early john barclay um yeah yeah so the um yeah so john kind of i mean i remember him presenting at the british new testament conference kind of like a banner of truth paper on um on divine mercy but i mean barclay is good because he points out the word grace is not monolithic and there's different ways of conceiving of grace uh and this is like you'd say like you know the difference between calvinists and armenians is not i don't believe in grace but they believe in different functions of grace is mm -hmm. grace the divine initiative mm -hmm. uh, or is you know is, is grace is it gracious because it's efficacious and that it guarantees you'll get to salvation or is it gracious because it gives you the opportunity of salvation? You know, so there's there's different ways of thinking about grace, and that and that's where where I think he's very good, and he's a good corrective to E.P. Sanders, right? Because I mean, you could argue what E.P. Sanders was doing in his reading of Judaism when he says, you know, Judaism is about grace to get in, but works to stay in. Mm -hmm. um, Sanders was still assuming a a very Christianized understanding of religion. Because mm -hmm. he's 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 operating on the concept that grace is good, and works are bad, so he's still operating on a very Protestant paradigm, in how he understands ancient religion. You know, grace good, works bad, uh, but it turns out there's grace in Judaism too. So right. I guess the Jews aren't so bad after all. <laughs> um, and you know, Barclay Barclay is so both is kind of you know, doing a bit of you know dual combat against the sort of. Um, the the sort of E.P. Sanders who want to reconceive of Judaism is just as gracious as Protestantism, and then the new perspective who want to reduce, or, or in the most extreme forms, want to reduce everything to a social epic phenomena. So he, he's kind of good on that. I do think he becomes very close though to reducing Judaism to a human system of calculating worth, and, and I mean he's aware of that and he's got an answer to it. But if if there is one. Um, weakness in Barclay's reading of Paul. Uh, it's that he it, it, it's back to the view that Judaism is religion and Christianity is a new relationship with God. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, we're actually reading uh, Paul in the, the, the pared down version of Paul and the gift, Paul and the power of grace, 
reading at yep. in our men's Bible study uh, on Wednesday morning. We're actually starting next week. And, um, and uh, yeah, we're going that we just read, we're going to that from NT Wright's Acts for Everyone. So um, talk about a good, good contrast that we'll be having. <laughs> so, um, Indeed. Uh, yeah. So, uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, this is more we could have added that we were maybe going to get into the topic of amaraldinism. Should I pronounce it amaraldinism? Right? Yeah, amaraldinism. Um, and um, I, if it's all right, um, I'll just include a link to that, um, to your blog on that, uh, because that's uh, uh, historic position on the issue of predestination, and a lot of Anglicans have uh, found that to be, you know, found, found home in that position. And so we didn't really get, that could have been probably a whole another great, uh, conversation, but I'll just include a link to that. And, um, there's so many things we could have continued to, to, cause you've written so much. And so I'm going to include for our listeners, uh, just links to, to the, uh, the Substack, the blog, your YouTube channel, uh, and a link to your books, uh, so they can explore uh, more of you. Um, and, and I'm sure they've a lot of them have already heard of you and are already reading and listening to you. But but uh, but but we really appreciate you for being on this show. It's been fun. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, th thanks, guys, for having me. And uh, yeah. And uh, hello. And thanks for listening to everyone who's tuned in. All right. God bless. <laughs>